welcome to episode 33 of Tahi Podcast. This episode is about Egypt's 2024 presidential election, and it will be divided into two segments. The first is this one, in which I'll be following up from episode 30, titled Egypt's Microwave Election, Potential Presidential Candidates, Censorship, and Reality, which I recorded the moment dates were announced for the presidential election and dates for registration and so forth. So this segment will be about what has changed since then. And the second segment uh, will be a segment in which I host my dear friend and Egyptian researcher and MA candidate at Cairo University, Ahmed Nada, where we'll be talking about the platforms of each candidate. So right now it's Thursday, the 30th of November, 2023. And that makes us about approximately two weeks from the election. The election is set to start on the uh, on the 10th, December 10th, 11th, and 13th, spanning three days. And it's set to kick off for Egyptians abroad, actually tomorrow, in a couple of hours, December 1st. So what I'd like to start by is the elephant in the room, Ahmad Tantawi. What happened to him? So Ahmad Tantawi held a press conference at the Conservative Party's headquarters in Garden City, Cairo. The day doors were set to close to register beyond the ballot. And quite ironically, that day I saw Hazem Omar, uh, one of the presidential candidates, register at the National Election Authority's headquarters in downtown Cairo. And you saw him walking there in his convoy. So what happened with Ahmed Tantawi is, as I made it clear in the episode 30 about the election, is that to be able to run, you either need 20 MP endorsements, so members of parliament would legally endorse you, and that would be enough, you need 20. And then the other route is you need um, 25,000 citizen endorsements, and they have to be spread out all Egyptian governance. So what happened with uh, Ahmed al-Tantawi is that he, he was prevented from acquiring these legal documents, whereas uh, whenever citizens would go to these real estate government offices to legally endorse him so that he could be able to run, they would either be turned down and told that the, quote, system is not working, or they would not be able to enter the real estate government offices to begin with, as there were thugs on a huge number of these real estate government offices preventing people from going in, and there were people just stalling it by standing in line, people that don't necessarily have a specific candidate to endorse. Some even were there to endorse the uh, president, who said that he got about more than 1 million uh, citizen endorsements, which he did not need because he has parliament, which is about 500, 600 people, of which he only needed 20, but ended up getting about 500, if not more. So that was how Tantawi was prevented from being on the ballot. On the ballot. What's really interesting is that they made it seem as though he is not he wasn't popular enough 
to get these endorsements, which is, as I said in the uh, in episode uh, 32 on Egyptian media and its Orwellian uh, tactics, is that that's simply not true. Looking at the number of campaign volunteers in Ahmad Tantawi's campaign, he had more than enough volunteers to, had they been able to legally endorse him in the real estate government offices, he would have ran without, uh, with no campaign, nothing. Just people that volunteered to be in his campaign, they would have been enough to land him on the ballot. But obviously, uh, there were other plans, and these more than 20,000 campaign volunteers, some of them uh, remain in, in jail, being persecuted politically. Even him, Ahmed Antawi, uh, now has a case of forgery in which he set trial on the, he had, it was postponed, so there will be another session on the uh, January, January 5th, yeah, that was when it was uh, postponed to. And it does not look good, because this is not political, this is not the um, SSP, this is a civil court. So it really is uh, worrying uh, where this is headed. It was... Yeah. As I predicted in episode 30, Gamila Espail, she did not, was not able to garner the needed legal endorsement and she was not able to garner parliamentary endorsements and so she wasn't able to run. But Gamila is different to Tantawi, for Tantawi is extremely popular and was effectively prevented from actually being on the ballot, whereas Gamila has both. She was not popular and perhaps not even popular enough to garner these uh, 25,000 endorsements. And in addition to that, she would have also been prevented from actually garnering these endorsements that she would not have been able to collect anyway. So she pulled out Another aspect that I won't be giving much attention is, is, the, is that the state is effectively pursuing a classical divide and conquer strategy in this presidential election, whereas the people or average, the average Joe or average Muhammad would not be able to point out who, who's who, who's, who's a real candidate, who, who's that guy, what's his platform, and so forth. And how that is done, I feel like it goes without saying, is that there's only one independent candidate and two puppets. So if anything, the independent candidate would get lost in the mix. So that's, that's I feel like, the, that, that's a very classical case of divide and conquer. And I won't be giving it much attention throughout the episode because I feel like it's it's pretty evident and pretty crystal clear where what that is and where it's headed. And another thing that I also feel like doesn't need to be directly addressed and goes without saying is that this is not a free election and it, it is a an undemocratic election. I mean, if it's not going to be rigged, if the votes are going to be actually counted, it's still unfair and undemocratic in that sense. In the sense that the incumbent has all basically all reins of the state, he has um, he holds all power basically. And as an incumbent, this is not really weird, be it in democratic or undemocratic settings, but in this setting, specifically uh, an undemocratic setting by holding all powers, I do not 
only mean the executive branch of governance, but I mean all branches of governance in addition to the media, all media, all kinds of media broadcasting on, on TV, cable TV, and um, advertisements, uh, airtime, everything, basically. Even though it's worth noting that Farid Zaran has been on TV a couple of times, which also could be connected to the point about how he was able to run in the first place, which I'll get into the detail later. So I think this explains a lot. And another thing that also I think goes without saying is that this is not a democratic climate. I mean, people are still being arrested. Their houses raided at dawn and, and even the pro-Palestine protesters, there's approximately more than 200 people now getting tried in, in, by the SSP for protesting for Palestine in Cairo and outside Cairo. So I think this grows, uh, brings a lot of things into perspective. And the other candidates, the candidates that actually made it on the ball is, of course, Field Marshal CC incumbent president, Hazem Omar of the Republican Party, Abdesanad Yamama of the Weft Party, and Farid Zahran of the Egyptian Social Democratic Party. And Farid Zahran of the Egyptian Social Democratic Party is, I think, the only candidate that could be argued to be um, independent and amidst these other candidates, excluding the incumbent, of course. But even then, Farid Zahran's extent, which is independent, is still fishy for how he made it on the ballot was through utilizing his security connections, as I thoroughly argued in episode 30, which you could go back to and check. And that's exactly what happened. He did that and he in turn was able to be on the ballot, which means that there was or there is a motivation behind those who allowed him these votes having him on the ballot, which I think is important to mention when speaking of Zahran as an independent candidate. Hazem, Hazem Omar's party, the Republican party, has about 50 mm, members in parliament, 50 MPs, of which 49 endorsed him, 49 or 48. Yeah. So as his, his platform before one even thinks or looks at it, you already have 50 members of parliament. So what exactly were you waiting for to present for these suggestions and these plans? You already had the hand in, so why did you not use that? So I think this argument kind of puts into perspective the extent to which Hazem Omar is independent. And I think what it reveals is that he is not one bit independent. He's just there for political theater to make the incumbent look as if there is some form of diversity that they could brag about to Western media. The other candidate is Abdesanad Yamama, which I think is not exclusively an independent candidate. I mean, his, his platform is extremely fishy and weird, and we, which, we'll, which we'll get into in the other segment of this episode but 
he simply has nothing really to add. And um, he also pretty clearly said that he would be voting for Sisi. So there's that. <laughs> yeah, I think I think so. I think that's what it boils down to: Farid Zahran versus the incumbent. I think Tantawi, even if Tantawi made it, I don't think he was that big of a threat to the incumbent. But I think his problem lies in that he was very, extremely confrontational, extremely uh, bold, and he was gaining traction and gaining popularity by the by the minute, by the second. And I think that's why they did effectively prevent him from being on the ballot because he was threatening not that he was threatening uh their he it's not that he was threatening the incumbent's rule but that he was threatening their grip and their monopoly on on talking politics basically so all in all I think the only real candidates are the incumbent field marshal, CC and Farid Zaran. I think the other the others are either irrelevant or simply just not real independent candidates that actually do offer a real alternative, which boils it down to the incumbent field marshal and an extremely, extremely weak and unpopular Farid Zanad. And unpopular in the sense that he's not actually popular. Not that he's not liked or left. And now also joins me from Cairo, my dear friend, uh, Egyptian researcher and MA candidate at Cairo University, Ahmed Nada, to talk about the election and discuss it further. Welcome, Ahmed. Thank you for having me. I'm a little sick, but I'll keep a lid on the voice. Don't worry. Okay. <laughs> so, Ahmed, what do you think? What do you think of the election? So, my thoughts are um, complicated. I don't think that it has to be rigged, and I don't think they will rig at least the domestic election. But at the same time, it's I can't really see a way for a loss. Um, all three candidates are kind of weak for their own for their own reasons. Has a has the strongest party of them all, but it's still not it's still not a huge party. He doesn't have as much money as any one of the forty two parties backing CC. He doesn't have the syndicates and unions that are backing him. He doesn't have the volume of ads. If, you, if you've been around Cairo in the past month or two, you don't need me to tell you how many ads there are. Then you have Zahron, who, I'll put it this way, every candidate gets 20 million pounds from the state so they can run. Those 20 million are probably two-thirds of his budget. He's got good ideas, but I don't know if he'll break a quarter of a million votes. That's if turnout is that high, I wouldn't be surprised if turnout is low, like 10, 20%. That wouldn't surprise me at all. Turnout is the most interesting thing to me because if turnout is high, we're talking 60, 70%, which shouldn't be high, but for Egypt would be high. I could see a runoff, maybe. The X facts would also be um, invalid votes because the runoff is determined by who gets 50% or more in the first round. And that's 50% of cast votes, not of valid votes. 
So there are maybe 40 million people, but 10 million of them cast an invalid vote. That would make it much harder to get to the 50% threshold. But either way, I just don't think, I don't think this election needed other candidates. Uh, I'm not sure why Abdus Saladiyam was running. I can understand Hasmov. I can understand wanting to grow your party's image to break out of, of where your party is now. Not many people know this, but the Republican People's Party are in the minority government. They're in the coalition of the nation's future party. And they keep talking about breaking off the coalition because they feel like a junior member. So if you want a way to grow your image, running a full presidential campaign is a great way to do that. It shows that you have a ground game. The amount of votes you get could be fuel later if you want to argue for more seats. Um, another thing most people don't know, the party list for the 2020 uh, House election it included 120 seats for each of the Republican People's Party and the Homeland Defenders Party, but then it was lowered to, I think, 60 each in the end because the Nation's Future Party said that neither one of them was popular enough. This could act as a way to bargain for more seats in a later party list. It could also be a way to build a popular uh, understanding of what the party stands for so that in the next election they do better in the House because I don't think he realistically thinks he can actually win. If he gets into the runoff, if there is a runoff, that would be huge for him. Um, his platform, which we'll discuss later, is actually pretty good, I would say. It's not incredible. I don't think any one of them has a platform that I would vote for with a clean conscience, knowing that I 100% want this platform, or even 80% want this platform. But his is one of the two ones that I can stomach. Um, Zahron, I can understand why he's running too. He said himself that he, he only thought of running like a month before candidacy opened. And I see his run as a way of presenting an alternative more than anything else. I don't think he realistically thinks he can win. Um, I did respect that he said those chances depend on turnout and that he doesn't think turnout will be very high. But honestly, I, I don't think he has much of a chance. Yeah. Full disclosure, he's who I'm voting for. So I mm. am biased here. Um, as for Abdusadiyama, I wish him the best. I hope he survives. Uh, so, wait, before we get into others, uh, the point about uh, Zahran and the prospects of him actually doing good, there was an interview he did with uh, Al-Manassa a couple, a couple of months ago, and in which he said that um, either way, regardless of the result of the election, he will be having some political wins and that he part of why he decided to run is that he would be um, he would basically be getting political wins for he said for different political scene in general and for his party, the Egyptian Social Democratic Party, uh, which I think is why he's running. I think he's just doing it for his party to be able to have more space for his party in future things, be it parliament, be it in other state activities. So what do you think about that? It's a good point. And um, just like I contextualize the Republican People's Party, going into this, the SDP looked pretty weak. Um, if you were talking about opposition parties, the Justice Party had just proposed the local government bill. The uh, the Gamal party were the main party in opposition at the time. They were leading the opposition coalition in parliament. You had smaller parties like Britain Freedom, Workers and Peasants, who were starting to appear on the street. 
you had the Socialist Popular Alliance get a huge win because a member of them is now the journal, uh, journalist syndicate. And you had the SDP just kind of there. Whereas now you have the Justice Party and even the, the right-wing neoliberal uh, Reform and Development Party endorsing him. That's It's a very strong way to say that I am leading the opposition now. My party exists as an opposition party. And regardless of what happens, you'll have gotten a few wins in terms of networking. He met with the EU ambassador. He met with um, the new US ambassador. He met with people like the Coptic Pope. Like That's the head of the uh, Federation. Yes. Oh, I didn't know that. He met the new uh, US ambassador, the Garg, uh, she met, Garg. She met with all four of them. Well, not CC, she met his campaign chair, but she met with all four candidates' representatives, more or less. And that's huge for him because his party, if you had asked me before if there were parties not likely to make it into the next House election, I would have mentioned the SDP as one of them. So he puts people like me in, and he, he puts doubters like me to bed with this run. The main problem is I think it it's a huge waste of resources. Well, not a waste, but it, it expends a lot of the party's resources, and I don't think they have that many resources to begin with. What is... Oh, just running for president in general. It takes a lot of money to... Just if you want to put an ad in every city, you've got at least 70 cities. Just one ad. And holding campaign conferences... I don't think it's a coincidence that half of his campaign conferences were just in Giza. It's just logistically easier to deal with. And what do you think of uh, Ahmed Tantawi's um, exclusion, or rather, prevention from running? I honestly I don't get it, because I don't think he ever really had a chance of winning. Um, I honestly think his chances were lower than even Zahron. Not lower than Yemem, I don't know why Yemem is running. I can't stress enough, I have no idea what he's doing. <laughs> but with Tantawi, I don't like him on a personal level. I find him extremely shady. But I think what happened to him was worse. Because he, he's now standing trial. Over 120 people from his campaign are standing trial. And for what? I get that what he did was illegal in terms of making um, forged uh, candidacy. Uh, I mean, it's not, it's not forged. But it's, it's not forged not. per se, but apparently it turned out illegal to have these... By law, it would be forgery, but it's the same way that by law, if you um, give someone uh, a US dollar on a personal level, that's considered money laundering. Mm. Like we both know it's illegal, but it's it's not a huge deal, is what I'm saying. The thing is that I I wouldn't even be surprised if after the election the charges were dropped, or if he gets like a slap on the wrist, like a fine or whatever, wouldn't surprise me at all. But it also wouldn't surprise me if this goes on for years, if he spends years in the courses as punishment. Um, there's a lot of there are a lot of things that the state has been doing, especially the security apparatus, that don't make much sense. I don't think that he was ever a real problem. Yeah, but I, I he was making noises, mm. but I don't think he ever stood a chance. And if anything, tactically, you'd want someone like that just for the image of opposition. But one thing they could have been looking at strategically is it would look really bad if he get on, if he got into the election and he got like one and a half percent. That would mm -hmm. just look really, really poor. Um, but, the other thing is that he could have raised turnout, which might not have been a good thing for CC, because I think the the biggest enemy he has would be high turnout, which I don't think is going to happen.
But I feel like you're underestimating his his potential. I mean, I never I don't think it's rational to think that he uh, even had a chance at winning. But I think that if you look at the bigger picture, he was gaining uh, he was gaining a lot of popularity, both on the ground and online. And you could see that from his videos visiting uh, the real estate government offices. Uh, and some of which he was beaten and pushed um, during the legal endorsements uh, period before the uh, registration. And he was very, I don't know how to put it, very confrontational. Whereas Farid Zahran is not. He, he is, of course, part of the opposition and he opposed the government and the president, but he is not as confrontational. But Tantawi is, it's like he has no limits. He has no um, roof that limits what he says and what he what he does. And I think that's what threatened them. Someone that just did not care and just attacked, 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 attacked. And as I said um, in the previous segment of the podcast, I was physically present at his press conference in which he said that he would not be running and it's hard to describe what I experienced there I mean to begin with I think I would not have voted for him or maybe I would have but I generally I don't think he's fit to be president um, I think he's an important politician I think voices like him fierce confrontational opposition figures are necessary um, for healthy political life, be it in democracies or in dictatorships, that does not uh, matter or factor. But the atmosphere, seeing him walking amongst the people, people chanting for him uh, during the speech, everyone listening, I felt like maybe it's because we're Egyptian and I'm very politically deprived in real life, uh, given the, you know, the period uh, we've been living through. But I felt something when I saw him coming out of the uh, Hezbollah Muhafazin uh, HQ into the garden to give his speech. Uh, I got goosebumps. Like I seriously got goosebump, goosebumps all over my body. No homo, but like... <laughs> it just felt surreal. And I think that's what strikes fear into whoever prevented him from actually running and from whoever is persecuting him and his campaign volunteers. And um, once he said that, once he said the numbers of people that were able to legally endorse him and said that he would not be able to run, um, a lot of people there were crying, crying their eyes out. And I was standing there, I was, um, I was really shaken. I mean, I didn't cry, but to be honest, I felt I felt like I had personally taken a blow because I had been, as I said before, I don't think he's fit to be president, but I believe that his, his, his talk about the Constitution, about how he would be um, respecting and protecting of the uh, Constitution, and all of this political talk, I don't think he had much of a plan, really. 
what especially when it came to the economy and inflation and and so forth and quite frankly i don't think he understood much of the problems that we're facing and this is of course not to say that the uh incumbent knows much but this is a, a, a i think it's it's not a fair comparison um i think so i agree with with what you said in terms of how it felt because he did feel different and I remember him as an MP, he did feel different as an MP as well. But my problem with him as an MP is the same as my problem with him as a candidate. He He's incoherent. Like what you said, he came out of the HQ of the Conservative Party while running as a leftist, while he built his platform around liberal ideas. Like, what are, what are What's the plan? Throughout his campaign, the only thing that was clear in terms of his plan was, I will be different. And I will limit the powers of the presidency. Uh, let me interrupt you. They were hosting. Um, they were hosting him for his press conference. So this is Akmal Kurtam's party. So everyone was there. Hamdan Sabahir was there. I saw him. Akmal Kurtam was there. Uh, the whole gang was there. So it's just yeah, but that was. He was endorsed by them as well. The Conservative Party. They endorsed him in his race, if I remember correctly. Yeah, yeah. I know. I, I know. I mean, like, there is no political divisions here. It's just the opposition as a as a blank. Mm. The opposition think, that's not in favor of Farid Zaran. And I think that in itself is a problem. It's a problem in our political scene. Because opposition is not an ideology. Because when you, when you stop being opposition, when you become the ones in power, let's say, what will you do? Because if you don't have that unity, you're going to be stuck. You don't, you don't have any ability to govern. And we see this sometimes. For example, um, when Morsi took over. The biggest issue he had was that he didn't know how to govern. Because in the entire time the Brotherhood existed, it existed as one of two things. Either as an opposition party or as terrorists. And neither side can actually govern. You see this with something like the Taliban in Afghanistan. They know how to run an insurgency. They're very good at it. They don't know how to govern. And I don't know if you've seen like the social media posts they've made about how awful it is being bureaucrats. When you, build, when you build your movement around something, it has to be something you can translate. With Zahron, I agree that he's not brash, like he's not confrontational. I don't think he's ever been confrontational. And we're talking about a guy who was imprisoned under three different presidents. <laughs> he, he was never confrontational. He, he's In Europe, they would call him loyal opposition, when he's opposing the person in power, but he's not opposing the institutions. What do you mean by institutions? Uh, do you mean the state? itself yes whereas i think tontoi opposes the institutions he doesn't like parliament he doesn't have a strong relationship to them he doesn't like the army he said that he'd have an army vp so that he could smooth relations over um he doesn't like the judiciary and i mean i think that's going to translate in how he's treated by them that kind of thing and you can't really win that way that's the problem one of our problems with how we run the presidency here is that it's not clear what the presidency is, because by the constitution, the president is meant to be an internal and external diplomat. He doesn't have executive powers. The orders he issues are orders so that people with the executive powers, like the prime minister or like ministers, can actually get things done. A lot of what Tantawi wanted out of the presidency is already a thing in the constitution. The presidency has very limited powers in the constitution. And funnily enough, one of the candidates brought this up, and it was Abdus Sanadiyamama for some reason. But the way he brought it up is he wants to remove the office of the prime minister. So the president has even more powers. 
But anyway, our problem is that we've built the presidency around the person, not around a seat or a position. And all of them have been running based on that. Even the ones who, like Tantawi, like Hazamam or like Fritz Oron, who said they want to limit the presidency's powers, they say this as if it's a it's a concession they're giving personally. As if it's the pharaoh saying that he's going to limit his own powers for your sake. And I think Tantawi fell into that too. Everyone falls into that uh, that problem. The thing is, if you go by it legally, if we're, if we're doing it purely based on institutional knowledge, and and the legal frameworks that exist, the second you take power, every institution around you is going to squeeze you. Because they can't. Because if you're not backed by anyone, you don't have that many powers on paper. So if the first thing you do is limit your own powers, if the first thing you did in the election was alienate everyone and burn all your bridges, you're going to have six years where nothing gets done. And that's if you continue those six years. And I think Zaram have this problem too. I don't think has a lot more wood because he has a good I hope he has a good time. I hope he has fun. Mm. So now let's get into each end of it. So what do you think of Field Marshal CC? Well, he uh, hasn't presented a platform yet. So uh, I guess his platform is business as usual. Uh, according to his campaign manager, uh, Judge uh, Mahmoud Fauzi were poised for an economic leap. If he truly believes that, then okay, good for him. Uh, I don't know how many companies will have to sell for that economic leap, but whatever. The, the fact that he, he keeps talking about wanting people to vote and he keeps talking about how important the process is while making a mockery of the process bugs me. Uh, he's also already in breach of the constitution because he has ads on schools, on hospitals, ads on properties owned by the Decent Life Foundation. The constitution is very clear that you can't use state assets, including the fixed assets themselves, as campaign fodder. Not only and that, yeah, I saw also, but also it's um, it's outlined in the uh, the articles um, the National Election Authority outlined during the exactly. first conference. Yeah, exactly. So it's both unconstitutional and illegal. I've even seen ads on state company buses. Uh, if you, if someone, if an alien came down and you asked them what the logo of Eastern Company was, they'd say CC's face. All of their buses have his face on. <laughs> even the Central Bank, there are Central Bank buses that go through my street, and they have his face on them. That's not just a government institution; it's an independent government institution. It's genuinely disheartening to see that he doesn't care. Because this is the, his last shot at a presidency. I genuinely don't think he wants to continue past 2030. But if he does, it would be a tactical mistake, I think. Personally, I think it's a tactical mistake running in 2024 in general. But Why? Why do you think so? I think he'd have more power from the background either way. And I think he's losing a lot of the goodwill he had with the army. And on the street, he's losing a lot of the popularity he had. If you asked me before, in 2018, I have no doubts that he won. No doubts. The turnout was low, but among the 45, 50% of people who voted, I have no doubt he'd win 90% of them. He was genuinely popular. Now, mm, maybe we'll find 5 million votes in Bolivia. Maybe we'll find another 7 million votes in Saudi Arabia. Wouldn't surprise me. 
But if we're going based on the street, if turnout is high, I don't think he, he gets in right away. I don't think he's a first round winner this time. And even if there weren't other candidates, I think just annulled votes or invalid votes would have uh, would have threatened to rain on his parade a bit. But I just I dislike how he's going about this. Not having a platform, reaching electoral laws with his ads having major parties run ads for him, not even appearing at his campaign conferences, not meeting people in person. And right now, the Egyptians abroad are going to vote in just a few hours. The first people will vote in, I think, New Zealand. And right now, he's at COP28 in, in Dubai. I don't think he cares. He's saying the right thing. Like He's saying that this is not just a win by default. He posts other candidates' platforms on his uh, Facebook page. He posted a sample ballot. He had Mahmoud Fawzi tell people how to vote. He had the Nation's Future Party signal boost other candidates and thank them for their participation. But it's all for nothing if you don't even have a platform, if you're not taking the process seriously. It's like if I told a family member that I take their birthday very seriously, then I didn't come. If you're treating it as a fait accompli, then stop asking people not to treat it the same way. And I say this as someone who's going to vote. Because I, I think not voting is pointless. If you're not voting, then you're not counted. That's just how it works. That's in every election. If you're not voting, you might as well just not have the right to vote. If you don't want to vote, go and vote invalid. That way you're counted as someone who didn't want to do this. As someone who rejects this. If you want to vote for someone, go ahead. But just not voting, that's just kind of lazy. Voting is very easy. And the fact that even now, even with everything they've done to make voting easier, they still haven't confirmed that it's a holiday. They brought back the ink just to annoy you, because there's no reason to have it. They already have so many ways of guaranteeing that you don't vote twice, at least domestically. What would you say people arguing that you would be uh, arguing legit le legitimizing the election by voting, given that it's not it's an undemocratic election? It's undemocratic in the sense that it's not free. You don't legitimize anything by voting. But the line that I use is that it's not a fair election, but it is free. And voting is extremely easy. But undemocratic? It's free in the sense that no one's going to force you to vote a certain way because they don't have to. Not in that sense. It's just not fair because there's a candidate who has every possible advantage and even then gains even more advantages by to show that you don't think it's a fair process vote invalid it takes five minutes if you don't want to stand in line go at night the polls close at 9 p.m go at 8 it's not hard even if you don't want to go to your own polling place you can vote from any polling place just tell them you want but and that's it you're done if there's a public school near you you can vote right now well not right now on december 10th you can't but you can just do it you can just draw a dick on the ballot paper there you've done it. It's an invalid vote. It's going to be counted. And every time there's an invalid vote, you can see on their faces the people counting that it bothers them. Because an invalid vote tells them, hey, you came here for nothing. I don't think this process is worth it. Hmm. And they do care about invalid votes because invalid votes are the ones listed at the very beginning. The first thing they list when they announce the votes is how many people were registered, how many people voted, and how many of them were invalid. And that's the headline figure. And there were, I think the um, the House election, no, the Senate election, the Senate election, 
over 10% of votes are invalid, if I remember correctly. And that sends a message. And if you think they don't care, look at what they did with sugar and with bread rations. They announce a policy. And then when they see that there's even just a little opposition, even just a few angry Facebook comments, they start to alter it a little bit. Because fundamentally, they're cowards. They're worried. They're right to worry. The government in general. They're very right to worry. Because right now, it's it's very close to being, it's a powder keg. It's very close to exploding. So even just something as simple as one or two million invalid votes out of like 10 million who went to vote, that sends a message. And what do you think is going to come in a second? Uh, so if we treat it like a sports league, you know how you can predict a sports league standings? Mm. If you look at the wage bill, generally teams finish to within one or two places of their ranking by wages. So if we do it that way, then Hazamomer is going to come second easily. Uh, I think Zahron can come third. Yeah, uh, I hope he has a great time. Um, I hope they bring food. <laughs> uh, I don't think Zoran can come second, but if he does, I'll be impressed. Um, yeah, man, uh, did, I have no words. Yeah, I'm sure he doesn't have any words either. Honestly, I think if there's a coordinated campaign for a certain invalid vote, Muhammad Salah can come second. <laughs> I wouldn't doubt it. <laughs> So for um, programs, platforms, I think we only covered uh, Field Marshal CCs, which is almost non-existent. Um, so what about other candidates? What do you think of their platforms? So we can start with Yamama because I think his platform is the most interesting. And by interesting, I mean he's so much fun. If genu- genuinely, if you have like an hour free, just listen to some of his interviews. He's so much fun to listen to. Uh, if he becomes president, I'm leaving. So, Yamama's platform rests on three big axes, I would say. The first is that he wants to eliminate debt completely. He wants to amend the constitution, and we'll get to that. And he wants to fix the economy and education within 18 months to three years. So, in terms of how he'll do this, his platform is the least specific. He just, it's a list of once, more or less. And I think this is a problem we have in campaigns in general, that we don't differentiate between a platform and a list of objectives. Generally, what you have to do with a platform is you list your objective, and then you list the KPIs that will show up if you're going towards it, and how you're going to get to the objective. He just listed objectives. In terms of what he was most candid about, it was the constitutional amendments he wants. He wants the Senate to have a legislative role. He wants to remove quotas except for women. Um, And he wants to increase judicial independence somehow. Uh, He wasn't really clear on how he would do that. He said that he would need three to five years to fix the economy. And one thing he would do would be to exempt failing factories and projects from taxes for three years. And at the same time, he wants to eliminate the budget deficit. And at the same time, he wants to eliminate debt. I wish him luck. Uh, He also says that the constitution is bad for elections and he would want to amend the electoral parts of the constitution, but didn't say how he would. Um, And in terms of education and fixing the economy, he said he would create a national salvation government and the national salvation ministry 
and the Ministry of Economic Reform and the Supreme Council of Education to fix each of these things, but didn't exactly say how he would accomplish any of these. He also said that he wants to annul all the IMF deals and wants to go to war with Israel. And he wants to solve the Renaissance Dam, to quote him, somehow. So honestly, he's um, he's a delight. What about the others? So full disclosure, as a recording, Hazelmore has his last uh, party conference going on right now. At least I assume it's the last because electoral silence for Egyptians abroad began two days ago. Or actually, no, began yesterday, my bad. But silence domestically begins on the 8th, so he could hold another. Um, Hazem Omar has a very interesting platform, I would say. One of the things he's been most clear about is that he wants three years to reform the economy, and that the first step of reforming the economy is reforming municipal elections and municipal structures, because he thinks the central government shouldn't handle most things. Uh, during a campaign stop in the Eastern Delta, he said that he wants to fix the Eastern Delta's problems within three years, that he can do that just by enabling municipal government. I don't disagree. The problem is, how do you do that? It's This is again an issue of there's an objective, but the KPIs don't exist. The mechanisms don't exist. Where he did mention the mechanisms is with economic reform. He said he wants to build uh, industrial zones in every governorate. He wants to redraw the governorate map so that each one has a competitive advantage. He wants to uh, slim the budget deficit, but not remove it entirely. And he wants to reform taxes to receive social justice. And he said that what he would do is if you're making the median or below, you would not be taxed. So with what I'm making now, I wouldn't be taxed. Whereas he would raise taxes on the rich and he would raise taxes on corporate profits. And I think that's a great idea personally. The biggest thing that he said is that he would remove pretrial detention for nonviolent crimes, all nonviolent crimes. It would just be probation with ankle monitors, and that's it. He also said that he would uh, return to state-managed agriculture, so no more private farming. He would give free fertilizer and seeds to farmers and uh, dictate what they have to grow and where and when. He also said that he would revoke the Illegal Building Reconciliation Act that just passed, and he would prosecute all violators, but he wouldn't bulldoze. So he would find them, he would maybe imprison a few people, but he wouldn't bulldoze the buildings. Um, he also said that he would make sure that uh, old rents are resolved, but that old rents are not the central government's problem to resolve, and especially not the presidency, which I can kind of respect, but it's also kind of weaseling out of the problem. He also said that he wants to raise human rights somehow. He wants to open up the political sphere somehow. He wants to make the state budget resilient somehow. Um, and he wants to raise the efficacy and efficiency of state institutions, especially in services. He mentioned political, sorry, no, he mentioned education as one of the services. And he had a line where he said that he was taught in a private school because he was afraid of public schools, that he doesn't want someone to grow up that way. Uh, he also just revealed at his conference that he has a child with special needs. So he'll take care of people with, um, with special needs, people who are capable of difference. He's the only candidate who brought them up which was shocking to me, given that Zoran was his party was one of the ones who proposed the laws that we have now for people capable of difference. So I, it did genuinely upset me that he didn't bring them up. In terms of the other things that Omar would do, he didn't really mention how he would achieve many of his goals, but he did say that he would achieve a resolution to the Renaissance Dam by having a negotiation with hard red lines and that if they're crossed, he would use hard force 
which, uh, you know, I'm, you know, I'm always in favor of a candidate who threatens war before they're even elected. Uh, but I do enjoy that he's, he seems honest and he seems prepared. The problem I have with him is that he has the same issue that Tawi had, where you're not sure where he stands politically. If you ask me what his ideology was, I mean, he wants to remove the private sector from farming, but at the same time, he wants to increase the amount of uh, private participation in industry. So I'm not sure exactly where he stands. Yeah, but my question about Hazim Omar uh, remains the same. How can he take his platform seriously when he already has about 50 or roughly more or less members of parliament from his party? If you have all of these ideas, why don't you utilize these members that you have in parliament to try to instigate these changes that you want to see? Or that you want to bring as president? Exactly. Why? Why exactly. did you never start? Unless it's worth I mean, the only explanation for me is that this is not a real platform. It's just political theater, so that you can make CC look. You know, you can make him brag to the West that look, he we have candidates, we have uh, diversity. So that's how I see it. Yeah, and that was a big question mark for me too. Um, one thing worth noting too is that not only is his party in parliament it's in the minority government coalition with the nation's future party and they did propose some of the some of the parts of his platform especially local government but they didn't get them passed and the charitable view is that he saw that he couldn't do this with his party so he wants to do it from the top the less charitable view well he said that he's been preparing for this run for seven years and if i'm preparing to run for seven years then i won't i'll make sure that my party doesn't get anything done in the meantime because if I hold the keys to power, why would I use them for someone else's gain? The other thing is that, well, the biggest benefit he has is that he comes from a big party that's already in government. But that's also the biggest black mark against him. You're already in government. How can I trust you? And that's the main reason that I would vote for Zaron, honestly, uh, instead of him. But if it was a runoff between him and Sisi, I'm voting for him. Who, who would you have wanted to? Who would be, for you, the ideal candidate? One that's not on the ballot. Hypothetical. Um, it's hard to say because there are so many people. But if I had to pick from, say, members of parliament, like someone we've seen a track record of, I would be very intrigued by the Odawud or Ahmad Borulusi. The Odawud is uh, from the Nasrus party. Ahmad Borulusi is from the Gamor. Um, Amir Salber from the SDP is also a very interesting one. These are people that I've seen propose real policy solutions. Like you get angry, but who propose actual things, act actionable um, information. But didn't Tagamo endorse uh, CC? Yes, this was actually the first time they endorsed a presidential candidate in their history. But I kind of understand why. The In their, in their brief for why they endorsed him, they said that it came after the issues with Reza and that they don't think it's time for an election right now. I don't agree, but I can see where they're coming from. If there's ever a time to have to endorse him, I guess that would be now. Um, speaking of endorsements, by the way, I do want to shout out the Farmer Syndicate, because CC's campaign tried to get them so many times, and they kept saying they provide support, but they don't endorse. And they haven't endorsed him a single time so far. So I, I just want to shout them out for that. It's a consistent view that... Uh, their place isn't to just be Kemal Adat, you know, just another one of the syndicates. 
But how did they get a new uh, uh, syndicate leader? Because I recall the the one they had a couple of years ago was very, like it was supporting the increase of prices and stuff like that. So did it yeah, change? Even the one before him didn't endorse CC is the thing. Um, their stance has always been that they're extremely independent because they're the largest syndicate, both by number of members and, and by the amount of money flowing through their sector and all that. But the guy I'm talking about is not. He explicitly supported price hikes as a as a person, as a person he did, but as a syndicate they didn't. And there's a there's a solid separation between that, between the head of the syndicate and the syndicate itself. And how do you differentiate? You differentiate because the syndicate, when it endorses, it endorses as an institution with all of its members. And it's not nothing because when syndicates as big as that that have a presence endorse someone, their ground game is incredible. Because they, they have actual members on the ground. They have HQs and regions that people haven't even heard of. Like these with the farmer syndicate especially, there's no other institution that can get you everywhere from Kafrabotiq to Aizbat Parhut. They have members everywhere. So the fact that they didn't endorse anyone for the past three presidential elections is a huge thing. But the question is whether they really had to. Because either way, everyone has to pander to farmers. You can't really run Egypt without the agricultural sector. And you can't run the agricultural sector without the syndicate. All right. So how do you see this ending? How do you see this election commencing and ending? How do you see everything unfolding? So just like if is to do, Zahran's platform, I think, is the most complete. And we haven't talked about it yet. Um, the highlights, he has a very long platform, extremely long. The highlights are that he wants to pardon every prisoner of conscience. So everyone who was a nonviolent criminal is currently in pretrial detention or currently in prison. That's maybe 60,000 people just pardoned on day one. He wants to hold a national dialogue again, but specifically on every issue uh, that exists and specifically on media independence. Well, where I start to differ, to differ with him is his economic platform. He wants to raise labor force participation in factory occupancy rates, which is good, I think. He wants to achieve self-sufficiency and export. He wants to complete mega projects, but to study the unstarted ones to see if there are any that uh, should be canceled. But he also wants to increase the private sector's role in the economy. He wants to exit non-strategic sectors. He wants to uh, annul several government companies. He wants to sell several government companies to the private sector or to foreign interests. And he wants to increase foreign investment directly and add Egypt to the, to the global supply chain. We can differ on how to achieve economic reform, but I don't think you achieve it with the private sector right now. I don't think they... Personally, I don't think that a private sector that is increasing inflation by 70 to 100% in some goods is something you can rely on to improve the economy, especially because you don't have capacity to regulate them, or at least you your regulators don't want to regulate them. Another thing that he wanted to add, which I think would be a huge shift for the government and might even make the internal government dislike him, is he wants to stop flashy spending. He doesn't want to import cars for the government. He doesn't want to hold conferences on everything every few days. Uh, he wants to digitally transform the government and slim the frontline bureaucracy down. He wants the government to be, instead of six and a half million permanent workers, another 12 million contractors. He just wants three to five million workers total. Uh, he also wants a complete review of legislation and administrative decisions regarding parties, unions, and NGOs. 
He wants full economic recovery in three months. He wants to increase welfare. He wants to have welfare for people who aren't poor enough for welfare right now. All of these things require someone who has the buy-in of the government. But a lot of these things remove the buy-in from the government. Um, and that's the, the main issue I'd have with him. His platform is really good. Genuinely, even near the parts that I differ with, it's very detailed. It's not just a list of objectives. He says how he wants to achieve them. The problem is that I'm not sure he can, and I'm not sure anyone in his position would be able to anyway. So in terms of how I see it going, there are three scenarios, I think, that are most likely to occur. The first is turnout is like 10 to 30%. CC gets like 90%, Hazem Omar comes in second with like 2%, Muhammad Salah in third with 1.5%. Uh, Zarang gets like 200,000 votes, Yamama votes for CC anyway, and gets like three votes total. And then just the, the results are announced and no one cares. The second is that turnout is high, like 60, 70, if we're lucky, maybe even 80% turnout. And we have to go into a runoff, and it's between CC and Omar, and then in the runoff, CC wins like 70% of the vote. That's, I think, the, the outcome that the government would want most, in terms of the image that it would uh, create. The third outcome is we do get high turnout, and we do get a runoff, but then the runoff is annulled when they count Egyptians abroad, because somehow they found 75 million votes in Bolivia, which I think is the worst possible outcome, but also the one that is most likely if turnout is high. Because I don't think that the intelligence services especially want an election right now. I don't think they think it's time for one. And for the record, because there are people who think this election was held early, the constitution says that it has to be that it has to begin within 120 days of the end of the term, which is in April. It doesn't say what begin means. So they could have started the candidacy, they could have opened it 120 days, and then done the actual election the day that it was supposed to expire. But it's unclear. The fact that they did this now shows that they want to get it over with. It shows that they're worried about constitutional uh, issues. And another thing that very few people are talking about, the mandate for a judicial oversight of the election ends in January. Because in the Constitution, it says that from the date that the Constitution is adopted, which was uh, January 15, 2014, for 10 years, the judiciary is to oversee the elections. He, CC asked Parliament to extend this, and they didn't. They didn't even try. They didn't even draft a bill to try. So on January 15th, the National Election uh, uh, Authority will be annulled, as it is right now, because it can no longer have judges on it. All of the judges you would see in polling places would not be available anymore. So if you want an election administered by judges so that no one can tell you that it's rigged domestically, the last time you can do it is January. And if you look at the campaign timetable, they shrink it as much as they could to make sure that they don't hit that January 15th deadline. So I think they're genuinely worried about how the election will go, but I don't think they want it to go any way other than either low turnout or Egyptians abroad changing the outcome last minute. And what do you think happens after the election? as a closing uh, remark. I think after the election, the first thing, the most major thing that will happen is we'll get a new cabinet. Um, the rumors right now are that Hela Said will be the next prime minister. And if she is, I want everyone to, to focus a bit on what she does. 
because what she's known for is that she runs a tight ship and that if she doesn't think someone's working, she just fires them. So you could see a very turbulent cabinet under her, but I think out of all the people currently in government, she would be one of the best to take over. Another thing we could see is we could see the more popular parts of other candidates' platforms adopted. Um, one thing we could see is we could finally see local government because it's been way too long. It's been unconstitutionally long because the constitution says that we need to have local elections by 2017 and it was extended to 2019 by Supreme Court order. I don't know if you've checked the calendar lately. Another thing we could see is we could see more pardons, but I'm not sure. Um, we could see the conclusion of the national dialogue because they only suspended it until the end of the election. They didn't end it. But again, I'm not sure. Because the thing that throws a wrench into all of this is what's happening in Gaza. Another thing is what's happening with the Renaissance Dam. Another thing is the debt crisis. Another thing is the dollar crisis. All of these things make it less likely that we have uh, political openness. Because they only do this if they feel comfortable. And for a bit, that a few months just before COVID, it looked like the New Republic was going to be a success, at least somewhat, at least economically. After COVID, it's a whole different story. So it really depends on how it goes. If it's a big election and it has uh, two rounds, there's actual proper opposition, maybe, maybe we see a change of heart or see some different policies enacted. But if it's just another 10-20% turnout election and he wins by the votes of Egyptians and Kuwait, of which there are 750 million, then I don't think much will change. Uh, the other thing people are looking forward to is whether or not there's going to be another devaluation. Personally, I don't think there will be, at least not in the current term, because if they do float the pound, which I think is inevitable at some stage, if they do float it, I don't think they have the USD reserve, the liquid USD reserve, to actually maintain any uh, level of exchange rate right now. And they would be worried from a national security perspective first, not from an economic one. They would be worried about us turning into Thailand or Argentina, where our currency just becomes a stock that people trade on, which would make it crater. Like you'd see a dollar worth like 50, 60,000 pounds within like a month if that happened. Uh, if you want a preview of what that would look like, look up what Goldman Sachs did to the Thai bot in the 90s. But that's why I don't think they'll uh, go forward with it. The problem is that, right, as it is, the third float has already happened. The dollar right now is worth 50 pounds. That's the reality. The thing is, you just can't have it. So the float would do is you'd be able to have it. It would be expensive, but you'd have it. But that's a whole, that, that's a topic for Earth. It's a whole topic of its own. As for what would happen, there are a lot of things he can do day one of his, of his newest term that would get a lot of goodwill. He could do a maths pardon. He could pardon some big name people. He could announce an increase in wages. There are a lot of things he can do that would get a lot of pressure off him if the election goes poorly. But I'm not sure. If there wasn't a war going on, if there weren't issues with Ethiopia, if there wasn't an issue with the dollar, I would tell you that if I were in the intelligence apparatus, what I would aim for is someone else to win and then him to come in later. Maybe come in as a, as a consultant. Maybe just appear in the background, put some pressure on them. Because that would be the easiest way to remove pressure off him, by not having him be in the hot seat. I don't think that's viable anymore. I don't think that's an option anymore. So I don't see a, an outcome where he doesn't win. 
and even in terms of fair like fair elections, if the turnout is low, I don't see how he couldn't win ninety percent of like twenty percent of the population. I don't see how he couldn't win eighty percent of like thirty percent of the population. He has that many. There are enough people who actually genuinely want him to stay, either pragmatically or out of like some adoration for him or whatever. But it's not no it's nowhere near twenty eighteen. It's nowhere near twenty fourteen. He's in the worst position he's ever been in, I would say. And the frustrating thing is he has a lot of ways to get out of it. If he wanted to tomorrow, he could reform most of the issues of the, the country. And I think that's part of why he doesn't have a platform. Because whatever he puts in the platform, there's the obvious question of, why not a year ago? Why not two years ago? Why not ten years ago? Why now? It's... There's someone where... One of my co-workers says that the way he feels about CC is that he feels like the stepdad. Some people want him because he's the stepdad. He filled the void. Other people hate him because he's not the real dad. What he feels like right now is every election, he's the stepdad who just beat you to a pulp and is promising new things that he could have done before. But he's promising to do new things now to win your favor back. And you can do that once, twice, thrice. I don't know if you can do it this many times. And if he loses the street, I'm not going to go off and say that he won't finish his next six years, because I don't think that's going to happen unless he loses the army, which that would be much worse than losing the street, especially since the army, um, not sure many people noticed, but in the constitutional refer amendment referendum, they added a little clause that they could remove him. But um, I don't think the next six years will be easy for him if he decides to continue with the status quo and business as usual. Or at least that's my hope. Yeah, I think we've covered everything uh, related to the presidential election. So is there anything else you'd like to add before we end it? All I want to say is if you genuinely oppose, vote. Genuinely, just go go to the nearest school that's holding an election. If it's not your district, to say, I want to talk to and like look it up on election.eg and just vote. If you want to annul your vote, that's fine. If you want to vote for Muhammad Salah, that's fine. If you want to vote for Netanyahu, I guess, go ahead. <laughs> but just make sure your vote is counted because it does matter at least, at least to their fragile egos, it matters. And if you don't think that can move policy change, look at how policies change just from news anchors getting mad or people DMing them on Facebook. It's surprisingly easy to make the government feel bad. Well, thank you so much, Ahmad, for your time. It's always great to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much.
Thank <laughs> you.